Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Happy New Year's, everybody. This is 2013 now. And, and we're going to try not to raise the volume too much because we know some of you may have some sort of addled skull regions going on right now since mm-hmm. uh, since you know last night was the and early this morning was the traditional time to celebrate the, the coming of the new year. But now the celebration is behind you. Now you've got a whole year ahead of you. This is like the the early morning period when everything seems possible. You got a whole year. You could you could just accomplish just about anything if you put your mind to it in the next twelve months. Or it could be the early morning and the cold dawn light, yeah. and you see the errors of your way, and your poor alcohol-shrunken brain is screaming <laughs> for change. Either way, there's an opportunity here. <laughs> there's an opportunity to to rebuild, to accomplish great things. And we're not going to get into a whole bunch of just pie-in-the-sky um, New Year's resolutions, because that's always a trap. You, you say, this is the year I lose 200 pounds and learn, I don't know, uh, Spanish and Hindi. And write the great American novel. And write the great American novel. You know, you you just set yourself up for failure with those. And and by the time this this particular episode publishes, we should have a really cool article on HowStuffWorks.com about ways to to make New Year's resolutions that you can actually keep, uh, some of the strategies. So along those lines, what we're going to talk about today are some, some simple life hacks, little things, ultimately little things you can do with, uh, I won't say minimal effort, but um, but but it's not going to take uh, you know an enormous amount of effort to apply yourself to one or some of these. But the payoffs can be huge. You can ultimately change who you are, how you're perceived, how your body functions, even uh, just by making some minor changes in your day to day. Yeah, and uh, you know normally we do like to go esoteric with topics, but we did try to glean from our research this year some, as you say, are these easy life hacks that are practical, but uh, they have a lot of impact. So we'll start with this the first example, and I'm trying to sit very straight as I say this, and um, with arms akimbo, and uh, <laughs> because this, the first one has to do with posture. Yes, and and it's. I should add, when I podcast, I actually sit on a stool in in this uh, podcasting chamber because I want to have proper posture while I'm podcasting. You do. You're, like, totally engaging your core over yeah, there. Yeah, because the, the, the go-to chairs in this podcast chamber are awful. I, I, I don't know where they came from. I think they were, like, salvaged from, like, a, a shipwreck. And and if you actually lean back <laughs> into them, they just it curves your spine into a question mark. Um, I don't know. Maybe some people can roll with that a little better but i, I just i find it torturous because then i'm all hunched back in, in the chair and i i just i don't feel like i'm healthy i don't feel confident so if i fed up sit on the stool I, I feel a lot a lot better i feel like all right i can actually do this you feel large and in charge exactly yeah, yeah. and that is really uh what is at the heart of these postural changes because what we're talking about is body language and there's been a lot of discussion about body language how you can ascertain certain things from people um, by the way that they are giving you nonverbal cues but someone who's given us a fresh take on this is harvard psychologist amy cuddy and she actually has a great ted.com talk which is called your body language shapes who you are and she says it's not just about communicating what you're feeling, your emotional states, it's really about changing your biochemistry through this physical movement. Yeah, because the I mean the idea of don't slump, sit up straight, that's 
that's old. Uh, every, everyone's heard that uh, their entire life. They're, they're old, uh, you know, video, not videos even, but old, uh, like educational films. Uh, there was one called Posture Pals that they famously riffed on, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 where all the children are being told how to, how to, uh, gain their posture so that they'll be better little children. I think we all know on one level that, that there are certain postures that just look better and you're just going to look more like you know what you're doing and you're a little more, more confident. But Cuddy is actually, Applied the science, and uh, what I mean, one of the this sort of really interesting things that you mentioned is that it, she refers to it as nonverbal expression of power and dominance. So this is taking it out of the whole, you know, your mom saying "Don't slump, set up straight," and putting it in the context of the animal kingdom at large. You, I mean, it's kind of a, an overstatement of the obvious, but the power dynamics of this, the nonverbal communication of power. I mean, you see that in dogs. You see that in, in cats and in snakes in, in insects. I mean, you, you name it. The animals use their body language to show, hey, I'm the top dog right now. I'm the one in charge. You need to back down. Well, there was someone I uh, used to work with at the zoo, and he was a keeper there, and he mm-hmm. actually um, worked with the gorillas. And he would tell me stories about how we, when he would go in to clean their cages, that the male silverback gorillas would bow up at him oh, yeah. as if to say, hey, man, I see you. You know, what are you doing in my space? Which I think is really interesting because, as you say, you can see that in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that us humans uh, are doing the same thing, just sometimes subconsciously we don't realize it. And Amy Cuddy saw this in the classroom. Yes. Um, she went into classrooms uh, full of MBA students and what she saw is that the, there is a gender grade gap. Uh, men slightly outperform women. And it's really competitive. And so she started to say, okay, well, I'm going to take a, a closer look at this. And she noticed that the women tended to make themselves small and hold their wrist and uh, wrap their arms around themselves, while the guys tended to make themselves bigger. They leaned back. They stretched out. They draped their arms around chairs. And she said, you know, we know from studies of facial feedback that if you smile, you fake yourself into feeling happier. So what if, what if um, you could do the same thing with body language? If you just physically spread out, would you feel more powerful? That was the thesis of these studies that she conducted. Now, is she talking like actually, because I'm, at one point in this description, I'm just imagining like some dude splayed out on a couch, <laughs> and, and like there seems like there comes a point where it's no longer a. I mean, I guess that there is a certain uh, uh, communication via the body that says, "Hey, I'm totally, totally carefree. I'm mm-hmm. completely in charge. The dude abides, you know." But uh, but it seems like there would be a cutoff point to where it's like I'm just sit laying on a couch, versus I'm setting up straight and in charge, you know. Well, and, and it's interesting in the talk. She does kind of talk about the best ways to use this posture. She was saying that if you want to feel large and in charge, but you're talking to your boss, it's best not to bow up and try to dominate him or her because mm-hmm. that would send the wrong message. Um, it would then seem sort of as though you had some sort of evil agenda, right? Right. Now, just to, to, to drive home just another another fact about just how key this is to who we are and just how how it's in our genes and in our, our design. Um, she points out, Cuddy points out, that athletes who are blind from birth, who uh, say, you know, go through the finish line, finish that race, win the race, they've never seen other other people do like a, a you know, the victory, arms in the air, mm-hmm. head back. Uh, they, they've never seen that, but they do it. Like it's yeah. it's just a natural response to, to victory, to just go, ah, and just hands, you know, hands held high, head held high, uh, chest open, 
It's just a, a natural response to victory and dominance. Because they're assuming the power and the glory of that yes. moment. Yeah, which is really, I forgot about that point that she makes. It's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there are a lot of uh, different instances that you can bring up that really underscore the importance of it. Uh, Nalini Ambadi is a researcher at Tufts University and showed that when people watch 30-second soundless clips of real physician-patient interactions, their judgments of the physician's niceness, i.e., you know, uh, say her body language, or mm-hmm. um, predicts whether or not that physician will be sued. Huh. Isn't that interesting? So it's more a question of likability in this uh, instance where, where they're viewing these interactions as opposed to competence. So the people who are viewing that, they're not even really thinking about competence or liability or, or suing this person. They're just thinking whether or not that person looks approachable, seems approachable, and that predicts uh, whether or not they're going to get sued. Huh. So let's get to uh, what she was actually doing, though, Cuddy, when she was trying to uh, do this quick little life hack with people and their postures. Yeah, of course, she's... She's interested in the science of this, not just, uh, oh, well, you know, what's the, the, the cause and correlation here, but actually what happens in the body when someone is, is puffing up into this dominant stance. And uh, she found that there are actual hormonal changes, and the hormonal pro- profile changes. You see higher levels of testosterone and lower levels of cortisol. And she says that this ratio is really important and that if you look at a lot of, quote, unquote, effective leaders, Mm -hmm. that they all have this kind of cocktail uh, configuration, the leader cocktail. So they wondered, well, if you could have someone assume the alpha role, could you then game their hormones to do the very same thing? And they, in fact, did that. They had people assume postures of powerfulness, and they had people assume postures of what they call low power. And they found that the low power people were having a higher uh, cortisol incidence as opposed to the people who were the powerful posturers. Oh, so so they they took the alpha, mm-hmm. the alpha dogs, and they said, all right, now slump over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now just uh, now now bring your your shoulders up around your ear. Okay, now hold your wrist and. The chemistry in them changed. The yes. alpha chemistry uh, faded, and and they took on the the beta chemistry. Whereas you took the uh, the other betas, and you said, "All right, I want you to, you know, roll your shoulders back, open your chest, stand up straight," and then the leader cocktail bubbles up inside. Yes, um, you know, with in terms of testosterone and twenty percent increases in some cases, and um, the testosterone, of course, is important because this is that. Uh, this is what is giving that air of confidence, right? Yeah. And the cortisol levels is, you know, correlating to your amount of stress. So if it drops, then that's great. You look confident and you look comfortable. Yeah. And that's what she was trying to do with these people who were of different ages and genders and different positions in their own lives. She wanted to test this across the board and see if she could come up with something cohesive. And lo and behold, when they then tested them, uh, their hormone levels, they found that it did correspond with the postures that they assumed. Now, they were only assuming these postures for two minutes, which is amazing. Yeah, so, so it's not like go around like this all the time and your your chemistry will change. It's no, you can just go into this, this, this dominant posture for a couple of minutes 
and it'll lift everything up. Yeah. And, you know, she put them in a couple different scenarios, too, to see how they would perform. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just like, hey, let's look at your hormone profile. Now let's see how you actually perform. And what they did with one group is they had them give a keynote speech. And um, once they did that in front of the audience and they had assumed, again, the high power poses, they came across as much more confident than their peers who had the low uh, posture. And then they did the same thing again, the, the same assuming of these postures, and they had these people go in for interviews. Now, what's interesting about this is that the interviewer wasn't giving them any sort of facial feedback, completely neutral. And she said that <laughs> it didn't matter if you had assumed a low or a high posture. You, All the people who participated in this hated it huh. because Interviews, you know, they're so much fun anyway. Yeah. Um, if you couldn't get a clue about how the other person's perceiving you, it's that much more frustrating. But again, um, when they had someone go through coding this, because they taped these interviews, coding it to see uh, how the people performed. And again, the coder doesn't know what's going on here, doesn't know anything about the testosterone, doesn't know anything about uh, the cortisol or the postures. The coders, time and again, would say, this person is doing great, and invariably that person was the person who was uh, arms akimbo, mm-hmm. you know, chest outward, looking powerful. Huh. You know, it's interesting to think about the – I guess I, th- I tend to focus more on the chest outward thing, and, and part of that is – comes from yoga because that's that's one of the things that's stressed a lot in yoga mm-hmm. is to, to you know to open your chest open your heart uh, not only when you're just sitting but in various other poses as well and uh, my my yoga instructors often brings up examples of, of this in uh, say superheroes because what does a superhero yeah. have they have that emblem on their chest as if in, in a way like a superhero with an emblem on their on their chest be it Superman or Batman or whatever it's kind of a body dominant codpiece of sorts. You know, it's kind of like they're saying, not only is my chest open, it's got this symbol on it, it's got a bat on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings to mind Hanuman, the monkey god, out of Hindu legend, who uh, at one point proves his devotion to Ram by, by ripping open his chest. And there's like a, he had, shows his fiery heart and there's like a miniature Ram and Sita inside there. Uh, so that's another example of the, the open, fiery chest. That's just kind of adorable too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Hanuman's great. You gotta love Hanuman. (laughs) But I also can't help but be reminded of a conversation we had with Holly Frey Mm -hmm. last week, who is, of course, the co-host of Pop Stuff. Pop Stuff, fabulous uh, How Stuff Works podcast about all sorts of uh, cool, geeky, and pop culture things. Uh, But she was talking about getting her photo taken Mm -hmm. and how, like, the photographer at first was like, "All right, open your chest. uh, You know, don't slump." And then they were telling her, "Don't." Open your chest. So to, I wonder to what extent, because yes. we're talking about the gender di- uh, yeah. dynamics here, to what extent does that play into it? Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say one of the problems here is the, just the physicality of mm-hmm. it, I think, for women. Because sometimes if, if you are to put your uh, shoulders back, well, obviously your breasts are going to be pushed out much more. Right. And, you know, it, going around like that it looks a bit odd because it seems as though you're trying to um, – put that forward as the agenda as opposed to being like, hey, look how powerful I am. So it may be one of the reasons that women do sort of sometimes uh, crouch in. Okay. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah. um, And that's obviously not true for all women because obviously everybody has different body types. But um, it was interesting that Holly brought that up. And then I was certainly thinking about this. Now, one of the, the iconic 
poses that Amy Cuddy talks about is called the superwoman pose that they had everyone do. And in particular, she was interested in doing it uh, with the females because okay. she wanted to see how that would work. But the superwoman pose is you've got your hands on your hips mm-hmm. and you've got your shoulders back and you've got your feet, you know, about, I don't know, maybe like two feet apart from each other. Okay. So you see Wonder Woman in this pose and various uh, promotional stills from the old TV show. Yeah, yeah, with the cape floating in the wind behind her. Um, And so this is what she's talking about when she's talking about assuming a powerful pose. Now, it's kind of hard to do this in your real life, but Mm -hmm. now she says that can't, that doesn't, won't stop you from going into the bathroom before an interview. Right. Doing it for two minutes. Doing it for two minutes. And then coming out and at least having that energy and and confidence inside you, even if you're not completely, you know, Storming into your boss's office with, uh, you know, acting like your Supergirl. Right. Which, hey, or I don't know where you work, but that might uh, that <laughs> might work. But yeah, I mean, she's saying you might return to the waiting room, uh, but now you're going to return to the waiting room and you're going to be assuming a powerful pose as you sit down and wait, as opposed to crouching together. So very very easy life hack to do. Um, and a very interesting talk by her on TED.com. All right, so there's one little thing that you can do, just tweak your life in the the year ahead. Um, But we have a few more to mention, and one that certainly comes to mind, uh, especially in light of some recent podcasts, is uh, how we deal with what is called the default mode network. Yeah, default mode network, just as a refresher, is uh, a sort of a configuration of the medial prefrontal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, and the medial temporal lobes. And these cortical associations between another are really helping to shape um, this concept of ourselves. Yeah, it's it's. Basically, the neuroscientific understanding of the egoic mind of mm-hmm. that of that me 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 voice inside our heads about you know it's it's that it's that voice that when you you're you're not busy with something your mind busies itself by thinking about the past and worrying about the future and and just gnawing on itself like a like a dog dealing with an itch on its butt. <laughs> yes, as you have pointed out before, licking because, it to the point where it's now making a wound yeah, out of its own flesh. And, I mean, and when you stop to think about it, when you actually stop and become conscious of this, this, this cycle in your head, I mean, it's as, as ridiculous and pathetic as a dog chewing its own butt because you're, you're, you stop and you think, this is doing no good. This right. is absolutely right. doing no good. Well, the, the point of this whole um, cortical association is to maintain a balanced sense of consciousness right. and your ego. But as you say, sometimes you can chew on those thoughts a bit too much. And uh, it's this sort of hyperactivity in this region that you see in people who are clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's where the problems come online. And, you know, th- we should say this is kind of obvious, but everybody deals with depression at some point in their life, either throughout their life or at different spots. So uh, no doubt uh, you guys listening out there know what that feels like to be overconsumed in that part of your mind. So uh, what is important here about this is that, as we pointed out before, we spend half of our life daydreaming. And when we're daydreaming, no doubt we are thinking about ourselves and all of our problems and what we're going to do about those. Um, so in order to try to quiet this part of the mind, Meditation, it turns out, is one of the most effective things that you can do. Uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, who is the medical director of the Yale Therapeutic Neuroscience Clinic, and his colleagues asked 10 experienced meditators and 13 people with no meditation experience to practice meditation techniques. And he found out a lot of interesting things about this by using fMRI to look at their brains. And 
the experienced meditators had decreased activity in that default mode network. And even when the meditators weren't meditating, this region of the brain was much quieter than the inexperienced counterparts. Mm-hmm. So what's this telling us is telling us that a practice of, I mean, something even like, I think that was a 12-minute practice or a 15-minute mm-hmm. practice a day can actually change your brain. It can just sort of uh, tamp down all the wildness of the mind uh, to the point where, you know, someone may suffer from that wildness. Yeah, and, and you may be thinking, well, how do I, how do I start meditating? Right. I mean, you, you may think, oh, I don't even know if there's a place in my area that has meditation and my schedule's so busy. But it's as simple as when you wake up in the morning, before you do anything, or after you've taken a shower, I don't know. I'm not going to plan your day for you. No, but, but it is best to do it right then yeah. because that you get it done, right? Right, right, yeah. Okay, so let's say first thing, you get up, go to a room in your house where there's not a TV on, where there's not uh, another person stirring, where there's not a cat or a dog, uh, you know, playing for your affections. Mm-hmm. Take your phone with you, set the timer for 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that, and then just sit there and just and, and think about your breath, you know? Think of, like put yourself in your breath, breathing in, breathing out. Doing uh, alternate nostril breathing is a great way to do this too, where you're closing closing one nostril and then the other, uh, breathing in through one side and then out through the other. You end up focusing on that and then and and then instead of worrying about what the rest of your day is going to consist of or what you need to be doing at this moment, you're just in that moment, mm-hmm. experiencing that moment for, say, 10 minutes without even thinking, like, certainly don't have the clock out where you can watch it tick either. Just because the idea, too, is not to be worried about how much time is passing and am I through with this meditation yet. Okay, so I'm a lazy meditator and I've been doing it the last couple of weeks because that's really something I want to do in this coming year Mm -hmm. is to have a regular practice. And I will tell you that I don't even get out of bed. I just sit in an upright position and then I meditate. And then when a thought comes in, I call it, I call it a thought Mm -hmm. and I let it go. And so for me, the goal is just to get a quiet moment, even if that quiet moment is as short as five seconds. Yeah. And I do it for as long as I can, meaning either the cat comes in and, and starts to harass me or my daughter comes in the room. And sometimes that's 10 minutes and sometimes that's 30 minutes. But um, the point is, is that making it as easy as it can be for you is the way to accomplish it, at least for me. Yeah. Um, I really, I mean, I roll over and I start meditating. Yeah, and even if you, as we mentioned uh, on a previous podcast about this, even if you're not actually bringing the fight to the default mode network with meditation or, or what have you, just being conscious of it can be a huge victory mm-hmm. uh, on just a daily basis. If you can actually stop and realize, whoa, this is just my default mode network uh, gnawing a little bit too much on my hinder, uh, I should <laughs> let this go. Or yeah. uh, one method that uh, Eckhart Tolle uh, brings up is if you're having some sort of thought that you don't like in your head, mm-hmm. you know, that's saying, oh, you suck, or, oh, you really screwed up last night, think to yourself, I wonder what my next thought will be. And it, it's it's almost magical <laughs> in the way that it sort of clears the deck. Well, and that's, that, that's interrupting that feedback loop, right? We've talked about this before, and um, and when we've talked about uh, different instances when you're trying to acknowledge anger, which we'll talk about too, um, it's important to be able to get to that space. And here's the thing about meditation is that the more you do it, the more when you're not meditating, you'll be able to interrupt those thoughts or observe your own thoughts. And doing that makes you sort of like, uh, I don't know how to say this, the programmer of the matrix. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're standing outside of your own brain 
and you're deciding what the next move is going to be as opposed to your automated self. Um, now, if that's not enough of a reason to, to meditate, we should probably also mention that you can actually increase your telomerase. Now, telomerase is an enzyme, and it's really important um, for something called telomeres, which are sequences of DNA at the end of chromosomes that tend to get shorter every time a cell divides. So when we talk about telomeres, um, I think we've talked about probably in the context of the fountain of youth before. Yeah. They're kind of the, the shoestrings that are unra- unraveling on our life. Yeah, and so, you know, when when they unravel to a certain point, then you begin to see disease introduced mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So it really is important to try to bolster them as much as possible. And the way to do that is with telomerase, this enzyme that can rebuild and lengthen telomeres. Now, Tanya Jacobs, she's a scientist at UC Davis Center for Mind and Brain, reported in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology that meditators show improved psychological well-being and that these improvements lead to biochemical changes associated to resistance to aging at the cellular level. So what she is talking about here is that these meditators' white blood showed a 30% increase in telomerase, which is um. 30% is pretty significant here because, again, we're talking about this enzyme that is essential to long-term health of the body's chromosomes and cells. Yeah. And not to get too uh, study-heavy, but I did want to mention one other aspect of meditation and uh, the genetic level here. And I'm talking about Helen Lavretsky, she's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA, Seminole Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior, and she used dementia caregivers as her subjects in order to test meditation and stress. And the reason why she used them is because they have very high stress jobs and there's a high incidence of clinical depression among those caregivers. And she had 45 caregivers, um, half of whom were given a daily 12-minute meditation routine that they practiced for eight weeks. The other half were given a 12-minute place to sit and be quiet and listen to soothing music. And again, they did this for eight weeks. Um, They took blood samples before and after after, uh, in each group to examine their gene expression. And the results were that those who had been doing the meditation exercises had modified gene expressions. So what they found is that 68 genes were found to be different after the meditation. And the modified genes involved the body's inflammation response and the ability to fight off bacterial and viral infections. So the story here is that at this genetic level, they're gaming the body to have less inflammation, um, less illness. And again, in people who are having pretty stressful days, a lot of stress responses, and by simply doing this 12-minute meditation, they're able to vanquish the uh, stress genes here. Yeah, it's getting down to the, the epigenetic changes, actually shutting off harmful genes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's and, and again, it all, it all comes down to meditation. Um, another aspect of meditation that's pretty cool, attention. I feel like most of us feel like we could maybe be a little more attentive in our lives. Uh, and uh, indeed, there was a, another study from University of California at Davis. The Samantha Project enrolled 60 experienced uh, meditators in a three-month study. 
Half of these they selected to receive intensive training and practice in meditation over the spring months of 2007. So they, they carried this out, and at the end of it, they found that those who intensely practiced meditation got better at visual perception and, as a result, uh, experienced also improved attention. So. That's so cool because we, we always talk about how much we don't see in our daily lives mm-hmm. that's around us, that you can't take in all the data. But this seems to suggest that you could take in more data if you just could um, – Center yourself a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it reminds us again of the whole uh, the whole idea that that adults see the world with flashlight vision and children see it with lantern vision. And to a certain extent, meditation is about taking your flashlight vision uh, and dimming it out and expanding it into more of a lamp vision of at least your immediate surroundings and an immediate experience of the world. So, attention increases. Obviously, we're talking that's that's a little higher up on the tree for picking uh, because these, this is intense <laughs> yeah. meditation. But, again, low pickings, uh, easily obtainable, uh, is the idea that just 10, 12, 20 minutes a day can actually improve your life. So Right, at, at the genetic level and, and various other levels. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's definitely a return on investment. Uh, should we take a break here? We should take a break. Uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we have a few more little uh, life hacks you can throw at your 2013 and better yourselves without breaking the bank. All right, we're back. We've talked about how a little meditation can make a big difference in your life. We've talked uh, a little bit, too, about how just a little more awareness of your posture can make a big difference in how you feel, how confident you feel, and how confident you seem to those around you. And both of these are, again, things where it's just 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there with huge effects. So next on the list, we're going to talk about a, an old friend of ours here from a, an, another topic we've covered before in the past and uh, I've had a lot of fun with, that being decision fatigue. Now, decision fatigue, just to, to refresh everyone's mind, is it's the, the concept that the more little decisions you make during the day, or even big decisions, but the more decisions your brain has to make, um, it, it has a toll. It, it, there's a there's a limit. It, it ultimately ends up in ego depletion. So, if you wake up in the morning and you and the first thing you have to do, you have to decide what you're having for breakfast. Then you have to decide how you're going to get to work. Or am I going to take the train? Am I going to drive? Am I do I dare take the interstate or should I take uh, one of the, the the back ways, the secret routes that I know to get there? And then when I when I actually get to work, should I have some of the cake? That's out there for for Anne's birthday, or should I abstain from it? And then you're worrying about, oh, well, should, should I work on this project or this one? And what am I going to do for lunch? And then by the time uh, mid afternoon rolls around, you're done. You have like you have no more decision making process. So someone comes up and asks you something really important. Uh, you know, your wife that calls up and says, "Hey, should we buy this house?" And you just have no clue. You can't just say, "Yeah, absolutely." Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Okay. And I'm then later on, you're like, "How did that happen?" Yeah, I didn't even ask how much it was. Um, so yeah, I mean, what it points to is that we have a finite store of mental energy for exercising self-control, and this was found out um, by a number of social psychologists, but one in particular by the name of Roy Baumeister, and. Uh, he says this is the reason why otherwise reasonable people do illogical things. Yeah. Is because of this constant niggling, uh, all these sorts of little tiny decisions that we have to make. And they found this out through a series of studies, but one of my favorite ones, I, I believe it was a graduate student under Baumeister who was getting married 
and had to go and uh, what do you call it um, when you go and you register for gifts? Register for gifts. Register yeah. for gifts. They give you the little gun and you you shoot. You shoot. You try yeah. to figure out. And she realized that she was completely. Um, sacked by the whole process. I mean, she was just, it took all of her mental stores of energy. And so she did something very similar with a group. And I won't go into that, um, into that study. You can, if you are interested and you can check out our decision fatigue podcast. But the point is, is that it underscored that there's just only so much attention that we can give to every little thing in our lives. But here's the cool thing about it. It is food in particular, glucose that can help us with this mental state. Yeah, as it turns out, even even the smartest people, even like just the, the sharpest tools in the drawer, uh, if they don't have enough glucose in their system, if they're not well rested as well, they will not make those good decisions. Yeah, uh, Baumeister looked at judges on an Israel parole board, and uh, these judges and all of their decisions were studied to see if there was any pattern of granting parole. Mm -hmm. Now, after looking at something like 1,100 decisions, what the researchers found as the day wore on is that inmates were denied parole more often. So prisoners who appeared early in the morning received parole about 70% of the time, while those who appeared late in the day were paroled less than 10% of the time. Um, and what they see here is that those uh, judges were having a mid-morning snack, usually a little bit before 10.30. And then they would take a break, they'd have their snack, and then they'd come back. And then those prisoners who appeared just before the break had only about a 20% chance of getting parole. But right after their break, they had a 65% chance. So they're looking at this data, again, these 1,100 decisions, and they're correlating it with when the judges are getting these hits of glucose to their brains via food and figuring out that what the judges are doing when they're hungry or when, they're, when they've got a glucose depletion in their system is that they're taking shortcuts in decision-making. Um, the reason why they're denying parole is because that's just deferring the decision that they have to make. Right. So they're saying, okay, fine. I'm not saying yes or no here. Um, but I'm, I'm going to really, err on the side of not yeah, granting parole. Of yeah. not granting parole because, you know, in six months, three months, eight months, this is going to come back and we'll review it again then. Uh, because the mind actually knows when it is running out of energy. It will begin to batten down the hatches in these ways, in which we'll try to avoid decision-making. Yeah, so basically, the people in the study, they were just unfortunate enough to have their parole hearing take place during nap time and, and during snack time. Like, these judges basically needed a nap and a muffin yeah. to, <laughs> to actually think about the – and actually um, – actually study the case before them. So, Yeah, and Baumeister had said, your brain does not stop working when glucose is low. It stops doing some things and starts doing others. It responds more strongly to immediate rewards and pays less attention to long-term prospects. And granting parole is a long-term prospect, right? Because you really mm -hmm. have to think about how that's a long-term impact on that individual. So what is that? what's the takeaway for us? You need to eat the little snacks. I mean, that sounds ridiculous. It sounds mm -hmm. like you know, like we're all just a bunch of toddlers <laughs> sitting around. But that is what it boils down to. I mean, think about it. When when you're in a state, when you're feeling tired or confused, um, it's usually uh, correlated with having to eat something and, and get a little shot of glucose to your brain. Yeah, I mean, basically have some granola bars around or some snack mix or something or, or, or an apple or two. And you might be wondering, well, how do I how do I actually use this to gain my life? You know, what little rules could I make for myself in 2013? Like one concept that comes to mind is 
do not go onto Amazon or whatever your shopping site happens to be, or do not go shopping unless you ha- have had a granola bar. You know, make sure that you're going because <laughs> right, right. otherwise you're going into a, a decision making uh, or a series of decisions with without the, the mental faculties to really think about it, and you're gonna you're just gonna bomb it eventually. You're like, oh, I've got to get my mom a birthday gift. Uh, I'll just get her some perfume. You know, I don't, you well, know, you're just, you'll just point at something and shoot just to get it done. I'm glad that you bring that up because I think it, it's important to, um, underscore that the sort of life that we're leading now, wherein by nine o'clock in the morning, if you get up, say at seven, you have already made hundreds of choices, particularly if you're working on the computer and you're mm-hmm. using the internet and you're just not thinking of them as choices. Right. Um, but in even the pop-up ads that, that, um, Come up. All these sorts of things are choices. Um, you know, something that you have to do and respond to all that stimuli. Yeah, like a really pers- like a persuasive ad. You see it, and you're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder if I should buy that. No, of course they shouldn't buy that. That's a decision right there. You just use a little juice on that. Right. Or um, you see a sign, um, you know, at the train station that says, "Don't get too close to the train when it's moving," or you know, whatever. Even that, you might think to yourself, "Oh, I wonder if I get too close to the train when I'm, when it's moving." And then, bam, I've used some more <laughs> mental energy. Yeah. So. This is another case where just mere awareness is good. Just knowing that you only have so many choices and so much choice juice in that brain of yours. So limit where you squander it and know when to, uh, when to schedule your big decisions. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna have to go in and meet with contractors for a house or something, uh, you know, some, some work to your house or, or what have you, or if you're going in to get legal advice, do it in the morning or do it after you've had a granola bar. Just, just try and, and, push the advantage back in your, your favor. If you're going to buy a car, do it the first thing in the morning because the the sales uh, strategy that all of um, the sales force has been trained in is to wear you down with choices. That's why they begin to ask you a million different questions about what kind of car you have and they start giving you so many different choices mm-hmm. that by the time that you're actually signing the paperwork... Um, you have been worn down so that you begin to accept whatever thing they put in front of you. Like, oh, it's going to be $800 to have uh, windshield wiper uh, bedazzling done. Is that good? Yeah? Okay, great. Yeah. If you got a lot of choices to do also, know what sandwich you're getting. And don't go to a place where you have to build your own. Know what your coffee drink is. Better yet, go to a place, be a regular, so they know what your coffee drink is. So even if you, you, <laughs> you were thinking about changing your ways and, and wondering, is this the day that I get a cappuccino instead uh, of an Americana? No, it's not going to be in the realm of possibility because they've already made it the second you walk in. All right, so I think that gives you guys a good idea of a couple things you can do in 2013 to um – Life hack a little bit, easy life hacks to try out. And we'll take you out with a couple of other ideas here. One is uh, to bolster your creativity, thought experiments. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Try to figure out um, a problem or some sort of scenario and don't try to solve it. Just try to come up with as many crazy lines of thinking as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually known as Gedanken Experiment. <laughs> okay. In, in German, of course. Um, and it's really important. A lot of uh, really important thinkers have, have done this and had breakthroughs, creative breakthroughs. Um, another one is anger. Yeah, this one was really surprising because you, you brought this up just yesterday. And it basically boils down to a certain amount of anger, when used properly, is good for creativity and mm-hmm. leads to positive creative output. And initially, I just completely rebelled against this idea because – for the most part, in my own experience, I think of times where I've been angry at someone or something or a situation, and I tend to end up 
I end up going into that egoic mind area where I'm just brooding over that uh, that thing that made me angry and not getting anything done because I'm just sitting there going, oh, boy, boy, that person was a jerk to me. And, oh, I really wish this wasn't the case. Why is it raining? And and all that. And so it just becomes this inner dialogue. <laughs> Why is it raining? But but as, uh, as, as you discovered, when you utilize just right, when to take a play from the, the Emperor Palpatine playbook, when you use your anger, mm-hmm. um, you can actually achieve great things. Yeah, I mean, if you know that you're angry and uh, you can try to take that moment, again, this is where meditation comes into play, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it doesn't have to, but it's helpful because it allows you to observe your thoughts. One of the things you can do in that moment of anger is figure out why you're really angry, because oftentimes it's not really the reason you think it is. Uh, the second thing is it's motivating. It's a motivating factor for you to find solutions for that thing not to happen again, right? Right. Um, and this has been seen, uh, this, this anger and this utilizing of anger has been seen in several studies, and it really is a key hallmark of creative brainstorming. Uh, this was found by researchers Mathish Boss, Karsten Dedru, and Bernard Nishtad. And uh, the participants were, were actually made to feel angry and were able to do some novel thinking as a result. So you can actually use this for good, this anger, if you know how to game it. As long as it doesn't become rage. Because if you, some people out there know what happens if you put up the dishes, you unload the dishwasher while angry. What happens? You end up breaking a dish or you chip a dish or you stab yourself on some forks when you're going after the, <laughs> the uh, utensils. Uh, and then also you don't want it to turn into sullenness where you're just, you get so, you're just so angry and wound up, it just turns into depression. Uh, but if you're able to, to calmly utilize it and say, hey, why am I, why am I angry? And what can, where can I focus this anger in a constructive way? Then you, you can achieve really cool stuff. The more I thought about this, I, I did think of a few cases where I had a certain amount of anger over, I, I think in both cases it was some, it was like a very broad anger. Like I was, I was angry at trends that I saw in, in, in culture, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or something disturbing in history that was really bothering me. So it's more like humanity. At the large scale, yeah. Like I, in one case, it had to do with misogyny, and in another case, it had to do with uh, with with racism. And it's just kind of stuff where if I just sit there and I just brood over it, I'm like, oh man, people are really awful. And and you know, then you end up you, you're angry, and then you're sullen about it. So instead, I'm like, all right, well, what can I do creatively? Well, you know, let me. There's got to be a short story here or something. So in both cases, I was able to to write on it and try to create mm-hmm. something uh, in fiction that used that anger in a, in a creative direction. And then after I finished those, the the soul and the anger uh, inside me had resided. So, yeah, because it really can be a catalyst anger yeah. for something. Again, as long as you don't, you know, start uh, doing something crazy like just going out in the streets and yeah. being a, a general marauder. Um, but again, control. Control yeah. the use of the anger. Yeah. yeah. And then also, sometimes it boils down to food again. We've talked about being hangry. <laughs> yeah. um, and I won't go into detail, but there's a study about tryptophan and serotonin. And anger and the way that serotonin regulates the parts of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of reason with the amygdala, which is where we process um, emotions like anger. And it turns out that people who had been induced to have low levels of tryptophan mm-hmm. in a study in, in the brain, they had a harder time uh, with serotonin since tryptophan is a building block of serotonin in regulating their anger. Yeah. So sometimes it just boils down to diet, right? Yeah. So I would challenge everyone in 2013, if you find yourself in those moments where you're feeling angry, first of all, try breathing a little bit. Just breathe in and out for, uh, you know, 10, 15 counts. 
consider having a granola bar. And then ask yourself, if it's a persistent thing where you just keep feeling angry about something, ask yourself, what can I do with this anger? Is there something in my life, uh, in my, my hobby, my, my work, uh, or something that I just haven't even tried my hand at? Uh, is there something I can, I can level, I can fuel this anger into? that can actually, uh, if not actually make a difference. Because certainly there are cases where if you're angry about an injustice in the world, there are often ways that you can utilize that energy to address those problems. Well, and this is this is then the point where you don your superwoman stance right. and put on your cape. Yeah, get confident, feel confident in mind and body, and uh, go out there and see if you can make a difference. So 2013 is the year it can happen. The wind in your cape year. Yeah. All right, well, there you go. There's some... Uh, some excellent suggestions on ways that you can tweak your 2013 and sort of game it a little more in your favor in mind and body. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us throughout the new year with your thoughts on these tactics, with your um, experiences trying to use them, your success stories, your 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 failures even, we'd love to hear about hear from you. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter. And you can find us on Tumblr. On Facebook and Tumblr, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 